You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name is Trent Fleskins, your host. As always, this week, we are delving into a brand new topic, one we haven't spoken about ever before, but one that is going to be more and more prevalent to all your listeners out there, and that is specialist disability accommodation. It's a funding scheme that's a part of the National Disability Insurance Scheme, uh, the NDIS. And it's something that some of you may be aware of, but most of you won't be. And, and, and the reason for that is it's a pretty complex scheme. There's a lot of rules. However, at the same time, there's a lot of opportunity for those people interested in being a part of it. To help us out with that conversation, we have a brand new expert. It is Lauren Hart, Managing Director of Optimal Living Therapy. Thank you very much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Lauren, straight off the bat, just introduce yourself. What's your background? How are you involved in the SDA scheme and NDIS generally? As you said, my name is Lauren Ha. I am the founder of a company called Optimal Living Therapy and we're an occupational therapy service provider in the NDIS space and we do some work in the insurance commission scheme as well. I am an SDA assessor, so occupational therapy background, have a diploma in access consulting and went down the avenue of becoming a livable housing assessor and then an SDA assessor when the design standard came out in 2019. Our wonderful team work with a lot of participants who are eligible for SDA, um, people who have quite complex needs and complex disability. I guess that's kind of where my background started. I loved home modifications, working with people who had a disability who needed a better solution in their home environment. And that's kind of where the love started. And yeah, I guess SDA came along and it combined both ends of passion for me in terms of environmental design and supporting people with a disability to be able to do more in their own home and in their community. That's kind of where we are. So the crux of that there for everyone listening is your role within the SDA space is that you are an assessor. So if a developer was to build a few houses with the intention notwithstanding every other eligibility issue of having these be usable and eligible in the SDA environment, you would assess to essentially sign off that these are eligible, they fit the criteria. Yeah, that's correct. So the SDA design standard is the document that SDA assessors administer. And basically what happens is people would send us their plans, give us the intent. So, you know, what, who are you trying to develop for? What category? How many participants? We'd submit a fee proposal. And yeah, basically we would certify the plans at a desktop level so provide them with a design certification that says you know yes at this at this stage working drawing phase after your building permit or at the, the drawings you submit for a building permit yes you tick all the boxes here's your certificate and then we would come back again at the build phase reassess make sure it still ticks all of the boxes hopefully it does and then we would submit all of the paperwork to the NDIS that the SDA provider would then be able to register that property for that category. You definitely want to be getting someone like you involved in before you start building, right? Yeah, so it's not mandatory. The design certification isn't something you have to get, but it's so complicated and nuanced, the design standard, and each category has so many different requirements and there's so many subtleties within it that the chances that you're going to develop a compliant dwelling without having it certified is slim to none, to be honest. Can you talk us through a few of those just general themes as to what makes an SDA-compliant house different from one that we would be building as normal developers in a normal suburb in Perth? Probably precision is, is the main difference. If, if you build a house and you're 20 mil out or you're 50 mil out on a corridor or on a door frame or on a bedroom or on a bathroom, 
no one cares, no one notices. If you're 20 or 50 mil out in an SDA dwelling, that's the difference between having a certificate and not. Mm. And the SDA design standard is a black and white prescriptive design standard. So unlike the building code where you, you can, can have a performance comply. solution yep. and you can deem yep. to comply, there is no deem to comply in the design standard. So if I come and assess your house and your 1,200 wide corridor is actually only 1,150, you're knocking down a wall mm. or you're not registering it for SDA. Yep. So the risk and the stakes are pretty high, I guess, to get it wrong. Depending on what category you're operating in, the requirements that you have to meet vary wildly. So at the top end of the spectrum for high physical support and fully accessible, every single door has to have a specific hinge clearance and a latch clearance and a depth clearance, depending on the way that you approach the door, depending on how wide the door is, depending on which way it swings or slides. And those are the kinds of things that us as assessors have to be really across. That's our role is to look at those things. Mm. You as a designer, developer, builder aren't going to be looking at that kind of granular detail. I'm assuming things like removing steps, having space underneath benches for those with accessibility issues, having turning circles, especially in you know wet areas and en suites. Uh, and then for broader needs such as hoists and things like that, those become the differences that are required to be able to be eligible. But that's not to say that they wouldn't also be helpful for a lot of people who aren't eligible for SDA. Yes, correct. So if you take the improved livability design standard category, for example, the features of that would be features most people would love in their home. No step at the front door, no step at the garage, a, you know, hob-free shower. In fact, a lot of modern homes design those kinds of features in now anyway. Bigger, wider corridors, door frames and circulation spaces. When you kind of get up to fully accessible and high physical support, because we're designing for people who have a really specific set of needs, we start to incorporate features that you or I wouldn't identify with a standard residential home you know we're talking about very specific switch and gpo placement side opening ovens height adjustable benches really really wide doors pretty decent sized corridors and the bathrooms themselves whilst you can fit them out to look really beautiful and really modern they still look and feel like an accessible toilet you may find in a shopping center sda done really well looks like a really beautiful residential home that has these features built into it but there's some things that the design standard mandates you include that you kind of can't get away from. So, you know, you do need an accessible toilet and that looks like a disability toilet because yeah, that's what it is. Exactly. If we're able to get past all of these things and build a really compliant home and have the help of someone like yourself to do so, we would think, oh, great, what's the next step? Let's find ourselves a participant who's eligible to move forward. It's not that easy, is it? This is really quite a complex and convoluted scheme. And not only is it tough finding the right participants for the right area, for the right type of property you're looking to build, but first and foremost, you can't just be anyone coming off the street providing an eligible house. You actually need to be an eligible provider as well, don't you? Can you explain that side of things? Yes, you can go and build a SDA-compliant dwelling, but to enrol the dwelling, for a person to then be able to live in the dwelling, you need to be a registered SDA provider um, and you need to register with the NDIS as a provider and the Quality and Safeguarding Commission as a provider as well. And that basically means you need to jump through a whole lot of hoops that the NDIS can then tick a box to say, okay, we trust that you are going to provide services to a person with a disability who is highly vulnerable in a safe and ethical manner and you've got all of the checks and balances and policies in place to do that. Over and above being a normal landlord with a property manager who just puts it out to the market in a very even playing field 
It's not an even playing field, is it? No, it's not. You absolutely have to jump through a lot more hoops, but as you should, because SDA is about being a service provider for a person with a disability. It's Mm. not about being a property manager, even though you kind of need to be a bit of both um, when it comes to SDA. At first front of mind is being a provider for a person with a disability. Finding a tenant is certainly by no means comparable to your mainstream rental market. You're looking for what the NDIS has projected is 6% of the entire population that will be eligible for the NDIS. So out of 400 and something thousand people, the NDIS expect will join the scheme, which we already know is kind of, you know, blowing out of proportion. At the time when they set SDA up, that was 28,000 people nationally, which equated to about 2,500 people in the entire of WA, Mm. you know, Perth Metro to the remote corner of WA. So we're looking for a very small small pool of people. That's across four categories of dwellings. And all of those people may be eligible, but they may not actually be seeking to move. They may be happily housed where they are. They might be looking for a really specific property in a really specific suburb. And the market finding tenants and tenants finding providers or builders and developers is is quite disconnected at the moment it's certainly not easy and it's not easy for either party you've Mm. got a lot of people out there building who've got vacancies and you've got a lot of people out there who are looking for sda who maybe can't find what they're looking for and they've either then got to pick what's available or they're waiting around but it's very hard for them to find someone to say hey actually i want this property in this suburb can you go and build it for me? So what's the missing link there? How do we solve that problem in the industry to be able to really make the most of this scheme, not only as developers, but as a community to essentially find those participants? There's a few people trying to solve the problem. I guess Summer Foundation are a really great advocacy body for housing, housing solutions, specialist disability accommodation included. And they've got a platform called the Housing Hub, which is supposed to be where people post vacancies and housing seekers can go and find those opportunities, kind of like real estate for for disability housing. And um, there's another one called Go Nest by a provider on the East Coast. And there's also the NDIS's own vacancy finder, uh, which providers can register built dwellings only. So not just dwellings that are going to get built at some time in the future, date unknown. They can register vacancies that are existing and current, but they have to register them every month. So that becomes a bit of an administrative burden. It's really hard. Is the, the market's definitely nowhere near maturity. And I think that one of the big issues everyone's kind of trying to solve is how housing seekers and housing providers find each other whilst making sure that the person who has the disability is protected and and gets as much choice and control as they desire in the situation as well as housing providers who've been incentivized by the government to invest you know really significant sums of money to develop these this specialized housing because the government couldn't and weren't going to to also be able to actually have viable businesses because the worst thing that could happen for both parties is that the private market gets scared off they don't invest and they don't build or they're waiting around for people to come, which may not happen because there's a lot of hoops to jump through and no one wins in that situation because what could be a really viable commercial outcome as well as a social outcome, most importantly, for people with a disability, the worst situation that could happen would be that these private investors or funds and all of this enterprise who invested all of this money in a great social outcome that also provides a viable commercial return stop doing so because all of the hoops that participants have to jump through to try and get eligible to get funding to move into these properties isn't viable anymore. Exactly. You need to have a bit of confidence in that commerciality and be able to know that what you're building is therefore going to be able to be rented out and have what we just, you spoke about there, the incentive fulfilled. Let's talk about that incentive. When you think about a normal 3 by 2 or 3 by 3 house, that's a couple hundred square metres in Perth, you'd be thinking that we're renting out for twenty-five, thirty thousand $30,000 a year. 
when it comes to the incentive, the funding that we're talking about, if we do have eligible participants and they are interested in, in moving into your property, what sort of funding are we talking about here? How does it work? Yeah, so the SDA price guide is the document that lays out what the agency have effectively prescribed to the SDA market. So there's very specific rules around what dwellings in what locations, whether they have fire sprinklers or not, built to which category equals X money. It's a pretty complex matrix, isn't it? It's a really complex matrix. Thankfully, they provide a calculator. So if you're not good at maths, that's not necessarily the worst case scenario. But yeah, you, you have to input all this data. You have to be able to read these you know, tables and work out which location your suburb is in and apply that location factor to the, the base price of that dwelling. And then if you put fire sprinklers in, you add that loading on top again. And then it also prescribes that you can charge any Commonwealth rent assistance they're eligible for and 25% of the disability pension or up to 25% of the disability pension. So we've got the SDA funding plus the rental assistance plus a quarter of the pension. Yeah. When we're looking at that and you 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 look at, for example, from what I see, someone who would have wheelchair needs Mm -hmm. living in a group home of that three people could live in. They're looking at what twenty-three dollars to $25,000 in SDA funding in an area in Perth, plus the $6,000 in rental assistance, plus a quarter of their pension. Even if you didn't charge all of that, and we're thinking about thirty grand for that person, times three, that's $90,000 in possible rent coming in for your three by three that you've built that costs slightly more than the three by two you could have built on that similar area. That's a significant yield. There has to be a catch. Yeah, the catch is finding the people who the funding attaches to. Mm. So there's also an administrative component, I guess. Cost can also be attributed to the design stage where normally you just go to a builder and they pop out a plan that's pretty repeatable, project home for you know lack of a better word, yep. and you're pretty happy with that and you pick your selections and away you go. You need someone who understands SDA designing the house. You need a builder who understands SDA building the house ideally or someone who follows instructions really well anyway Um, and you need a certifier and that actual design process in the back and forth between all those parties can take some time and therefore it can cost some money but we're certainly not talking you know not enough to make not, this not, not enough an attractive to, outcome correct, if not you enough. have confidence in correct. participants entering yeah. and even if you had two participants and that third space that third bedroom was left empty it's still a pretty compelling argument. It certainly is. And I think the challenge is is really in understanding your vacancy risk, modelling your return on the expectation you will have vacancy because you will. And as soon as it's not like in the mainstream market where your tenant moves out, gives you four weeks notice and you just pop a sign and someone else moves in, yep. it's a lot more complicated than that. And at the end of the day, that at some point will come into play. You know, we're talking about a 20-year asset. Mm you know, people move, people change, you know, there's maintenance that needs to be factored in. It is still an attractive option, but I think people underestimate the complexity. If you're going to go in, you have to go in eyes open and understand and acknowledge the fact that you aren't building a typical house. Yeah, You're not building for typical people and you're effectively need to be really hands-on in the process or have someone who's really hands-on in the process to do it well. In addition to someone who is going to generally get that provider registration, because if you're someone off the street, a normal mum and dad developer, it's very unlikely that you're going to have the capabilities to meet the audit requirements to be able to do so. Capability and and desire as well. Not many people who want to invest their money, you know, you go and give it to a broker or an investor and it goes in a fund for however many years and you might make, you know, six, seven percent for very little effort, as opposed to being a disability provider it's a lot of effort. Mm. So, you know, you definitely want to outsource that if you're not going to do it for yourself or you're not willing to put in the effort and the time to do it yourself because time is money and all of that factors in. You were talking about turnover, vacancy rates, giving notice. Normally in in the rental market, you'd have a 6, 12, 24-month lease. 
Are they longer leases to give security to these participants? Are they five, 10 year leases? Is that something that we can look at and go, well, that's fantastic. That gives us security as landlords as well. You can certainly, you can make the agreement anything you want. Generally, it's a collaboration between the participant and the provider. Do we want it to be two? Do we want it to be five? Do we want it to be 10? You can make it as long as you want, but the premise of the NDIS and the premise of SDA is that the participant is protected at all costs. So if that person wants to leave your home, whether you have a 10 year lease or not, you can leave. Mm. And there's nothing as the provider or the landlord or the owner or the investor, whoever you are, that you can do about it. Because if that dwelling doesn't suit that person's needs anymore, they're going to be moving. I guess the other important thing to note is people who have a disability don't like moving. It's traumatic. And there's already enough going on in their lives that they're not someone who's going to pick up and move house every two years. But that's why building something that's really functional and really beautiful and in a great location and the service provision that happens in that home is as important as everything else because people tend to leave because they're not happy with something Mm. that is being provided to them. It's either the house, it's the maintenance, it's the service, it's the care. Something is going wrong to drive a person with a disability to move. It seems like an extremely generous scheme, one that if you get it right and you have your participants, you have your eligibility, you are registered or working with people in that space that can provide that registration, quite lucrative and something that seems like a no-brainer. Is there a risk that this funding goes away? Would it be political suicide if the next government pulled this funding? That's the thing, I guess, that people will be thinking about. Well, look, it sounds fantastic now, but how are they going to afford this in five to ten years' time? I think it would absolutely be political suicide for them to pull it all together, given it was a government-driven scheme to incentivise private investment in the first place and the fact that we're building houses for really highly vulnerable people who really desperately need the accommodation. I think, though, that when you see a lot of people talk about the commercial outcome of SDA and, and the, the potential yields and all of the positive things that surround that, what often doesn't get mentioned, you know, the security of government funding, you know, I see that line tossed around all the time, is that whilst that all is true to an extent, we're relying on a lot of other moving pieces and factors in that person's life to fall into place to make sure that your SDA funding continues to be viable long term. So we have a very turbulent landscape at the moment in the NDIS. Care funding is being really heavily scrutinised because the NDIS is beyond budget, according to the government. From what they've said, that it's you know tracking at a much higher rate than they thought it would be. One of the big drivers of that cost is SIL funding or supported independent living funding. Which is funding for the carers, not for the housing. Correct. But you can't live in a house without care. Mm. And so the turbulence of the SIL market heavily impacts the SDA market. What's left over for the housing. Correct. And you can't have people living in a single occupancy dwelling with a really, really high cost of care unless there's a good reason as to why they can't. Well, it's very expensive when you think about, well, there's twenty five, maybe thirty, forty thousand dollars if it scales up in housing accommodation funding and then we're paying tens of thousands of dollars as well in funding for that care. You know, someone in that situation, that's a very expensive burden on the tax man when it comes to that. And as much as we all want to see all these all people in this situation looked after and cared for, I guess the the bucket's only got so much money in it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, you hear the term choice and control tossed around a lot. And as an OT, I'm a massive advocate for choice and control. 
But at the end of the day, the figures don't lie and the scheme has to be sustainable. So I can put both hats on and argue both sides of that argument. But at the end of the day, if the government run out of money to fund this scheme, everyone loses. Mm. And so we all have to be focusing on the sustainability of it. We have to be considering what kind of innovative options we can come up with where people can live how they want to live, where they want to live and still be supported in a viable way. And that's a really complex equation that needs to be solved. When you talk about the viability of it, it's not like we're at the end of the scale here where it's been overused, it's been overdone and all the participants have found somewhere to live and we're running out of use for it. This is really the start of the scheme, right? It's only been around for a couple of years. People are still figuring out how to access it, how to use it. And a vast majority of that 2,500 people that you talk about that would be eligible at the moment for this scheme. They're living in inappropriate housing. They're living with their mum and dad still. If they have the opportunity, if they have the pathways to access this housing, there's a still probably 95% of that number that would be open to this market. Yeah, absolutely. So it's definitely an underdone market at the moment. It's definitely still in its infancy, even though it's been running for a few years. And, and a part of that is because development takes time, right? So, you know, you decide to develop a property and 18 months down the line, it's finally ready and people can then move in. So it's quite a dynamic market to work out where we are and what's being developed in number and how many people are going to be supported there. And even if you count the amount of SDA vacancies and dwellings available, no one has to live there. So it's very hard to say that we're saturated at any one point. What the NDIA have said is that they're of the opinion that they're pretty saturated for high physical support apartments because that's where everyone ran out the gates building. People who might use a hoist or a powered wheelchair, you know, to put it bluntly, it's the highest figure on the SDA price guide. Um, and that's and what people have been incentivized straight away to provide. Correct because people are looking at commercial outcomes. Um, mm. There's also, though, to be honest, like, it was also driven by the fact that Summer Foundation did all of these pilot projects in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales, and there was another one in Victoria that looked at 10 people living in an apartment sharing a concierge-type style of support, which meant that, yes, we all have our own support needs on a day-to-day basis, but rather than needing someone in our house all day, every day outside of the essential periods of care, there's someone on site who we can call on as we need them. It sounds like a great idea. They proved it to be really successful and really cost effective. But the, what I guess what happened when the SDA market opened up is it wasn't a controlled pilot project anymore and all of the other market factors came into play. So all of a sudden we've not got one company or um, not-for-profit really tightly managing how that process rolled out and succeeded. Um, and the agency's timeframes for approvals and applications are entirely fluid and, and you know more often than not incredibly long which makes the whole viability of those kinds of projects really challenging. And I think that's definitely one part of the problem in the market at the moment is the NDIA have rightfully so tried to separate housing and care supports, but they've also disconnected a market that relies on each other. So instead of having one provider provide your house and also provide the care within it, which has historically been the way it's always been. When we think about non-for-profit companies like Identity WA, you know, which I'm sure we've had experience yeah. with before. Rocky Bay, Ability WA, like every single not-for-profit around Australia, that, that was historically how disability support services were provided. They took out a lease or they built a home and they provided support to the people who live. So that's the way it's always been done. And the agency wanted to separate care and housing because in their mind, 
there's a lot of vulnerable people who are potentially being taken advantage of or aren't being housed in the most optimal situation when every service is being provided by one provider. By the status quo. Yeah. So instead, let's have different providers providing different services. So there's, you know, a bit of healthy competition, but also actually a bit of risk mitigation going on as well. Because there should be some level of efficiency with commercial entities who are looking to make a dollar, but also provide a service rather than the old stale not-for-profit sector, which may not be providing the best outcomes. Yeah, I suspect that's probably where the agency were going with it. And, you know, not to taint every not-for-profit with the same brush, some some of them are trying to be very forward-thinking and very innovative, and some of them are really excited about the opportunity to work with an external provider who builds a really nice functional house in collaboration with them, understanding their needs and their wants as a care provider. And they work together in this really great partnership to produce a really great outcome for people. But that is certainly not every situation. And And they didn't want to make that the only option. Yeah, absolutely. And so you've still got a lot of providers doing it all. Some may say that's a good thing and others may not. I guess that's opinion in many instances. But irrespective of whether you think it's right or wrong to separate housing and supports, what they've done is separate housing and supports to the best of their ability at the moment, the agency. And so because they've done that, they have disconnected two markets that are inherently reliant on each other. Mm. So take from that what you will, but it has certainly not made the journey for private commercial enterprise to build SDA any easier. Over the next three to five years, where do you see this space going in WA? Is it something where we're going to see a vast majority of those who need SDA housing being provided it? And there's a really nice balance being provided good support or will there be an issue on both sides where not enough developers take up the cause because they don't have enough confidence in their connection to be able to find the participants to fulfill their program combined by the fact that not enough participants have enough support to actually make themselves eligible in the first place. There's probably a reality and a utopian answer to that question. I think SDA offers probably one of the most unique opportunities in the world for people who have really specific specialised housing needs to be provided with a support that will literally change their life and has the opportunity to change the trajectory of their life and the supports that they need. And that's the thing that excites me most about it is it is just this unreal opportunity. And to see someone who is eligible for SDA move into SDA is heartwarming, life-changing, the most fulfilling thing you could ever see. It sounds too good to be true for both sides of the equation, the participant and the provider. Yeah, absolutely. But in reality, they've created a a scheme and a funding body, I guess, that should be able to facilitate that. But I think at the moment, it's so bogged down in bureaucracy and process and timeframes for people who need to get the funding for SDA that it's definitely not incentivising participants to explore their eligibility, Mm -hmm. which is a downside for everyone. It's a downside for the participant who could realise these really great opportunities. Yeah, move out of home at 35 years old finally. Exactly. It's a downside for the agency who, if they took a bigger picture, longer term view of that person's life, they would probably realise the cost benefit of providing an increased level of support initially. And it's a downside for the commercial market who've pumped a whole heap of money into developing SDA with the intent to get a good commercial outcome, but also to provide, you know, a really good social outcome for people. So everyone loses in that situation. It's just harder than it should be right It's now. harder than it should be, absolutely. it's not as mature as it could be. Yeah, it's pushing a rock up a hill. And the agencies, you hear anyone who talks about the NDIS talk about that they were building a plane while it was flying. And it is absolutely true. And I think they're still building the plane while it's flying. Clearly. And that's why I'm asking in the next three to five years, do you think the, a lot of those wrinkles are sorted out? Or do you think it really comes down to a still a niche group of organisations 
with capabilities and or experience who are the only ones that are really able to navigate this space to provide the outcomes for participants? I wish I had a crystal ball. 18 months ago, I said it couldn't have got harder and it absolutely got harder. (laughs) So I'm hesitant to predict the future. My hope is that the process issues at the moment that prevent people from getting SDA funding and connecting with the SDA market resolve, things improve, and we start to see the potential of the scheme reached where people who really need it get really great housing outcomes. I hope that the bureaucratic nature of the NDIS at the moment doesn't put off investors and it doesn't put off the private market to the point where we never get to realise the potential it could have offered and we go back to the old-style group homes where five or six people live together in old-style homes or just in a standard four-by-two sharing a bathroom again, having their house and their care supports provided by the same entity. And if they don't like either one of those things, they have to uproot their life and move as opposed to being able to exit either one of those arrangements. I hope we don't end up back there. Is COVID the answer to most of the issues bureaucratically red tape timeframes over the last year and a half? When when I think about that timeframe, I think, well, when you think about any industry right now, everything's taking longer, everything's harder. It's just COVID. Is that, is, that, is that a possible explanation? I don't think COVID helped, put it that way. But the, there was a lot of issues that were there before. They just got worse. The agency are well aware of the deficits that need to be corrected. They're also trying to manage a budget that they think is blowing out of control. So there's a lot of, I guess, fires that need to be dealt with and there's only so much resource to deal with the fires. I think that there is enough movement and weight and desire in the disability sector to see SDA succeed because it is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I think there's a lot of will yeah, absolutely. on both sides. From a commercial side, it's something that I think a lot of people will want to be involved in. And from the participant side and from the provider side, it's the right thing to do. And it's globally leading, as you said. Imagine if we can be a leader in this space and the government can provide for this in a way that's reduced the red tape to a point where nearly all people who are eligible for it are able to have confidence that they can be eligible within the space of a month or so and all people who are financially able and and capable from a skills base are able to provide that housing back to the market with confidence that they can link up with a participant. Yeah, absolutely. That would be an ideal outcome for everyone. I think though that as much as the agency has challenges to have blamed on it and also to bear the market also has to accept responsibility and be you know responsible corporate citizens about it you mm. know we can't flood the market with disability housing that most people don't need correct yeah. you know you can't build something hope that they'll come and then complain about the fact that you've got vacancies mm. and you know jump up and down and say that it's the agency's fault well quick one then what would be a top five tips list to try and mitigate that risk that you're not going to have eligible participants be interested in your property and I think I would focus not only on the internal side but more about the location side as well. I think you cannot underestimate understanding your market. No person invests in something and doesn't understand their market and for some reason people seem to not treat SDA the same way. You have to understand the people you're building for. You have to understand what they are looking for in their life access to public transport, access to amenity, a safe neighbourhood, a footpath outside their front door. The the kind of things you or I would look for in a house is the kind of thing a person with a disability is looking for in their house. Is there a nice park nearby? Can I drive in my wheelchair 
or can I walk with my carer to my local cafe? Everything is challenging when you've got access needs. It's probably similar or exacerbating the same requirements or preferences that a downsizer would want out of moving out of the, their big family home and into a unit themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Throwing in a you know a heap of other accessibility features and the fact that you probably want to be nearby to family or you want to be nearby to a community that you've always been a part of. Mm. I don't know about you, but if I lived in a share house, having my own bathroom would be pretty important to me. No brainer. People with a disability don't necessarily want to share one bathroom between three people, let alone four people. Mm. Even sharing with one person might be too much for some people. It's the kind of things that you or I would look for in a home. Like what features would you want? It's not about building the cheapest thing in the most average suburb that gets you the best return. Those are three things that will mean you will definitely Definitely have a vacancy and definitely not get a participant. Just because it stacks up on a spreadsheet, it doesn't mean that anyone wants to live there. Well, I think that is relevant to every type of property development, not just SDA options. Adding disability layered in on top, it's even more important. And so I think the way that I see it and speaking to a lot of people who want to be in this space, who want to invest in this space and want to develop SDA... You genuinely have to be in it for the right reason. No one's expecting you to get in it to lose money, but you have to be in it to do something that is good and purposeful and for the right reasons as well as make money. So essentially the theme there is if you can focus on the outcome of the participant before you focus on the outcome financially, you'll probably end up doing pretty well. Yeah. Do it the other way and you'll probably end up with some slightly augmented houses that no one wants to live in. Absolutely. And you have to understand the space. A participant who comes to you and says, hey, I want to live in your home and you've got no idea how to speak their language, you don't understand their funding, you don't understand the challenges they experience day to day and you don't understand half of what they're talking about and looking for, that's one way that's going to make me pretty disincentivized to live in your house. I, I want to be supported by a provider who understands my needs. Lauren Hart. Managing Director of Optimal Living Therapy. Thank you so much for coming in. This has been really insightful. uh, And I think a lot of people's ears will be pricking up listening to this and they'll be spending hours researching something they've never thought about before, which is the whole point of this podcast. So thank you very much. We look forward to having you in again in the next few months to talk about some even more exciting ideas. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!